Well, we are continuing our series in Matthew's Gospel. We have been here for now 18 months, uh, but we are making our way through, and we are coming to the end of chapter 16. And if you would, turn there with me. A few weeks ago, John preached from Matthew 16, 16, Peter's confession that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. And this, this passage is a hinge point in Matthew's gospel. It's a turning point in Matthew's gospel as Jesus is closing out his, his vast ministry of healing and miracles, and he begins making his way to Jerusalem to the very place that he will be crucified. He has come to this point because now it is time to fulfill his primary purpose in coming, which is to suffer and die for humanity's sin, that his sacrifice would purchase our salvation. Jesus, Jesus knew exactly why he came and what he must do, but his disciples were not so clued in. They were, in fact, often at times clueless and often slow on the uptake on why he came. And so, with great patience, Jesus begins preparing them for his death and for his resurrection. But also, he prepares them for their future, a future as his disciple, a future that, that really describes all of us who are his disciples, and on each step of this journey, from the very beginning of Matthew's gospel, Jesus has been preparing his disciples into the life of a disciple. He's been taking them deeper into what it means to be a follower of Christ. All the way back to chapter 4, he said to them, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. In chapter 5, he taught them the Beatitudes, uh, what a follower is. A follower is poor in spirit, hungering and thirsting for righteousness. Is a, a follower is salt and light. A, a follower desires treasures in heaven rather than, than on earth. A follower is not anxious for anything but trusts his heavenly Father. In Matthew 6 and 7, a disciple is one who must go through the narrow gate and walk the narrow path. A disciple is one who bears good fruit. A disciple is one who seeks after true righteousness. A disciple is one who builds their life on Christ, the solid rock, and not a life on sand. A disciple is one who is willing to leave behind all family for the sake of the gospel. Leave the dead and let the dead bury the dead, Jesus says, to those who want to follow him. In Matthew 12, he talks about doing his will at the cost of even family, that accepting those around you who have put their faith in Christ, that is your true spiritual family, even as a higher priority. And in Matthew 13, he says to be prepared to be rejected by family and friends. And in Matthew 10, he lets the disciples know as he sends them out 
your life will be one of suffering and persecution for my sake, for the gospel. And now, as we get to the end of chapter 16, we will read one of the most definitive passages on discipleship in the New Testament. Jesus describes for us the demands of being one of his followers. Look at chapter 16 and beginning in verse 21. Follow along with me. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed, and on the third day be raised. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, Far be it from you, Lord, this shall never happen to you. But he, Jesus, turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Then Jesus told his disciples, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? For the Son of Man is going to come with angels in the glory of his Father. And then he will repay each person according to what he has done. Truly, I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of the Lord stands forever. Matthew 16, 21 through 28, which we just read, summarizes the measure of what discipleship requires. Not just for these men and women who are followers of Christ in this ancient Near Eastern time, but what it means for you and me. This way of life is not only something that should be considered for those who are, in a sense, super saints, men that we would read about like Hudson Taylor and John Calvin and Charles Spurgeon and women like Elizabeth Elliot or somebody like Billy Graham, but for ordinary followers of Christ. These commands are for you and for me because we are ordinary believers. This is simply what is required of us. These words here, particularly 24 through 28, these words are for you and for me today. It's what we must, it's what we should do as his disciples. It's not something that is beyond what we should be doing. In 1925, at the U.S. Open, Bobby Jones, who is one of the most well-known golfers in the world, one of the, the best golfers in the world, accidentally moved his ball as he was setting up for a shot. No one saw it, 
But Jones was adamant that the ball had moved. And so he assessed himself a one-stroke penalty, costing him the golf tournament as he went and lost in a playoff. Praised for this classy move. Oh, you called a penalty on yourself, Jones quipped. You might as well praise me for not robbing a bank. In other words, he simply did what was right and what was required of him. And it shouldn't have been praised. By the same measure, we are to live as disciples. And Jesus, in Matthew 21 through 28, defines for us what that looks like and what that means. So three points this morning. The cross, the kingdom, and the second coming. The cross is disciples live in the shadow of the cross. That's the first point. And let's look at that. Immediately on the heels of Peter's confession, Matthew looks towards the crucifixion. With his identity clear in the minds of his disciples, Jesus begins to enlighten them what lay ahead. He tells them in verse 21, from that time on, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed. This was a divine necessity that was non-negotiable and could not be altered. Even though the disciples recognized Jesus as the Christ, they had a very poor understanding of what he meant. And they, they could not imagine a suffering and dying Messiah, the very man that they've been spending all this time with. His teaching and his predict, prediction about his suffering and death shocked them particularly Peter. Peter, in hearing this prediction, he he misses the most important point. Yes, Jesus is going to suffer and die, but he was going to be raised on the third day, which Devin taught us so well last week. But all Peter heard was this man he had tied his entire life to, this man that he had literally, in a sense, sold everything to follow behind. This man who, who created the most miracles and did the most amazing things, who calmed a storm at sea, who cleansed a leper, who raised the dead, this man said that he was going to suffer and die. That makes no sense. How could somebody that powerful be killed? And why would somebody that powerful be allowed, allow himself to be killed? So Peter does what Peter does. It says he pulls Jesus aside like a parent does with a child. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Now that's boldness. Rebuking the Son of God, the creator of the universe. Hey, God, get over here. That's really the attitude behind it. He assumes he knows better than Jesus. He doesn't accept what Jesus has just said, but criticizes him for saying it. And Peter began to rebuke him, saying, Far be it from you, Lord, this shall never happen to you. 
It is inconceivable to him that Jesus would experience the humiliation he has just spoken of. For, for Peter, it's unthinkable. It's unthinkable that the one he has just confessed as the Messiah, as the Christ, the one who he in his mind would think, this is the conqueror. This is the one who's going to free us. Yes, he came to bring freedom. Freedom from Roman oppression. Freedom from the legalism of the scribes and Pharisees. Freedom so we don't have to live under this life anymore that we've been living under. How can this man die? If he dies, it's all lost. Peter, it's unthinkable. So with his typical boldness and his impulsiveness, he pulls Jesus aside and he rebukes him. That doesn't last but about one second. Because then Matthew records for us, but he turned. He turned. Jesus obviously had his back to Peter and he turns. Now, I, I can't imagine that gaze at that moment. But Jesus looks at Peter and he immediately rebukes Peter. Peter has rebuked him. And now the tables are turned. But he turned and said to Peter, get behind me, Satan. What he's literally saying is, get out of my way. Your thoughts, Peter, are satanic. This is the same thing I heard when I was in the desert being tempted by Satan himself. And in a matter of moments, Peter Peter goes from being a man praised for his confession of the Christ to a man being shamed because he's speaking for Satan. And he's denying the cross. Peter does not understand the cross. He sees what Jesus has outlined for them as a goal to be fulfilled, but, but it really, to him, it's a disaster to be averted. What Jesus has predicted is not just undesirable, it's unfathomable. How, how could this happen? You've got to put yourself here. You've been following Jesus. You've been close to him. You've watched him do miracles. And now he looks at you and says, I'm going to suffer and die. All hope would be lost at that moment. Now, what we have to understand here is that that Peter and the other disciples, their their view of Jesus' messiahship is sorely lacking. Peter is blinded by his own future that's going to require how to live in the shadow of the cross. And that's exactly what Jesus is explaining here. He's told these disciples, he's told Peter, I am going to die on the cross and you are going to live in the shadow of the cross because my future is this and your future is tied up in my future. In other words, if you remember back to chapter 10, When he sent the disciples out, he said, you will be persecuted. You will suffer for my name's name's sake. 
Peter still wants a Christ who's going to use his power to rule over their enemies. He's, he's looking at this from a human perspective, and, and that's exactly what Jesus tells him. For you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. He didn't want a suffering and dying Christ. But that's exactly why Jesus came. For the kingdom of God to advance, for the gospel to have power to transform, Jesus needed to suffer and die. And the painful lesson that Peter and the apostles had to learn was that to follow Jesus meant crucifixion. Very likely, Peter did understand to some degree that if Jesus had to suffer and die, it would mean the same for him. And he came to understand that. He came to understand that when he wrote in his epistle in 1 Peter 4, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. Which is exactly what Peter's feeling at this moment when Jesus tells them. This, this is strange. No, and he goes on to say, But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. This is, this is one of the clearest statements of what the Christian life is about in this passage in Matthew. To follow Christ is to live in the shadow of the cross. If we want to join him in glory in his glory we must join him in his suffering in his disgrace in his shame in his humiliation we literally must be willing to die now we can only we can only understand what the cross truly means and it only by understanding the depth of our own sin not a popular topic in our culture. If the cross is what it took to forgive your sins, how great must your sins be? Peter resists this idea of the cross because he has yet to confront his own sinfulness. But he will soon enough when he betrays his friend and his Savior. Listen, no doubt the disciples love Jesus and want to protect him, but what they miss is Jesus' deep love for them by going to the cross. A cross they must be willing to accept. A cross we must be willing to accept. So the first point is the cross. We live, disciples live in the shadow of the cross. Secondly, the kingdom. Disciples follow the narrow path that leads to life. And to hammer home his point, Jesus now tells his disciples that suffering is not only his destiny, oh, but it's yours as well. And setting aside Peter's unwelcome and worldly suggestion, Jesus now addresses all his disciples with words that are echoing the same words in, in Matthew 10, 38 and 39, he goes on to say that those who follow him must expect to suffer. You didn't read that in the Jesus pocket promise book you were given when you first got saved, right? Where, where's the promise in here about suffering? Where's the promise in here about being humiliated? Where's the promise in here about being mocked? Where's the promise in here about being ridiculed? Where's the promise about being rejected? 
You didn't get to read all those promises, did you? And that's what Jesus is promising right here. The demands for following him are not just for the 12, but for all Christians. And here he states three requirements of discipleship. Then Jesus told his disciples, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Denial of self, taking up your cross and following him. Now, let me say this first. Denial, denial is deeper than I'm going to de- deny myself of chocolate. I'm going to suffer by denying myself of eating chocolate. But denying, denying ourselves is about denying our old way of life before we believed in Christ. How we acted and, and what we believed, what we thought, how we related to others. It's about no longer putting ourselves first, but putting Christ first. It's not putting us as the center of our life. Last night I was running up the steps and somehow, which is not abnormal for me, I stubbed my toe. Now, if you've ever stubbed your toe, you know how incredibly painful that is. In fact, at that moment, nothing else in the world exists except that toe. You fall down, you hold that toe, you caress that toe, you speak to that toe, oh, stop hurting, please. That toe becomes the center of your life for a few moments. Many people live their lives like that. Everything revolves around their happiness, their needs, their desires. They live a a stub-toe life. Peter was getting the message as the other disciples. It's about self-denial. Denying yourself about you being the most important person in your life. Secondly, cross-bearing. Jesus says here, take up his cross. Now, cross-bearing does not refer to some irritation that you experience in your life. It involves not just living in the shadow of the cross, but the way of the cross. The vivid picture here that Jesus is, is painting is of a man already condemned, required to carry his cross. Listen, the cross was was a Roman method of execution, but it was well known by the Jews in Jesus' day. So this picture that Jesus is painting is clear in their minds. When he says, take up your cross, immediately they have a picture in their mind of a man who is bleeding, who is suffering, who is scarred, and who is carrying the weight of a cross on a back that has been flogged. That's what they see. Jesus has painted a word picture here. And that is what he's saying. Take up your cross. And not just the weight of the cross, but he's saying, look at the man and what he's been through who's carrying the cross. That's you. The language of self-denial and the language of bearing a cross are not popular Christian themes. 
These words have been diluted and have been misused by Christians and others. We, we can tend to minimize this idea and force of, of the cross, of taking up your cross with sayings like, well, we all have our cross to bear. But Jesus wasn't talking about the discomforts we have in life. He wasn't talking about a troublesome neighbor. He wasn't talking about a difficult boss, a long road trip with very unhappy children, or even a chronic illness. Those who heard him utter these words knew what the cross meant. They knew it was a prelude to somebody's crucifixion and death. Jesus was speaking about death here, about a, a death to a whole way of life, about the, the utmost in self-sacrifice, a death to selfishness and all forms of self-seeking. His, his cross, Jesus' cross, is a literal death. The death of a condemned man on his way to execution. Discipleship is a life of potential martyrdom. It's a call to put loyalty to Jesus above all your own interests and comforts and family and earthly things, even at the expense of your own life. And these words, these words to the disciples, they became a reality to them. James was beheaded. Stephen was stoned. Peter was crucified. Paul was, was sawn in two. And the list goes on even to this current day. There is, there is, listen to this, there is a cross for every servant of God. And when we follow him, we should not miss what he says here. He says, deny, take up, and follow me. That follow me is a continual follow me. Keep following. Even in the midst of what you face in a world like ours, keep following. Taking up our cross is to identify with Christ, that we are united to him. And it's going to cost us something of earthly value. It's going to, it could cost our reputation, our friendships, our family, our financial security, even our lives. That is what Jesus is after here. He is saying, are you my disciple? Do you really want to follow after me? Do you believe that you're supposed to be one of mine? Okay, here's what it's like. Here's what it's like. Self-denial. Cross-bearing. Following me. But listen, our, our suffering and death as disciples, it is not the final word. There is a reward that awaits us at the judgment, even if, if we don't falter and if we don't deny Christ. These verses they emphasize the incomparable worth of eternal life. Look on for, he goes, for whoever would save his life will lose it. If you live to, to save your, your worldly life, the life of, of what it's like to have the pleasures and experiences of this world, if you, whoever would save his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Now, he's talking about the reality of persecution, suffering, and death there. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeit his own soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? Anyone who sets his will on saving his life will lose it. Jesus is not talking about 
salvation as though a person can atone for their own sins, but about trying to preserve your life in denying Christ and his kingdom. Jesus drives home the point with these questions. Will you choose life in Christ over life that this world has to offer? Because if you choose this world, you've made a poor bargain. Several times in our studies in Matthew, we've come across the idea of rewards, rewards in heaven. And Jesus tells us here that everyone who follows after him, who does these things, will be rewarded. For the Son of Man is going to come with his angels in the glory of his Father, and then will repay each person according to what he has done. That you, there are rewards. There are rewards for the life that you live. Where are you laying up treasure? Here on earth or in heaven? And anyone who follows after Christ must embrace what Jesus is saying here. And again, this is not what you'll read in the Bible pocket promise book. Now, oftentimes we evaluate our lives with a win-loss approach. What will this cost me? What am I afraid of losing? What will I gain if? And Jesus cuts through the noise of this with these questions, these two very profound questions. What will it profit you if you gain everything this life has to offer? And what would you give in return for your soul? You couldn't buy back your soul. If you gave up your soul, you couldn't buy back your soul. Not even if you had the whole world to give. And in view of Jesus' cross, To be his disciple is to carry one of our own. If we're going to come after him, we have to be willing and ready to suffer and die. But now, when I say these things, and I talk about our cross, and I talk about death, I talk about taking up a cross and dying, you're sitting there, and I know you're sitting there and saying, that is so far removed from me. Nobody in the United States dies for being a Christian. How does this have any relevance to my life at all? You know, we can easily understand this concept for those who live in evil dictatorships like North Korea or countries like Iran, but the world, the world has grown decidedly more hostile to Christianity. Places like Canada and Finland and even here in the U.S. Listen, the road to silencing Christians through suffering and persecution and then death begins first with trying to silence our voices by attacking our beliefs and our characters. It was just a few years ago that the mayor of Houston demanded that pastors submit their Sunday sermons to her before sharing them so she could determine if they included hate speech about God's order of creation with respect to male and female and marriage. Houston, Texas. That's right, Larry, Texas. (laughs) Today, in our world, Christianity is no longer respected. Our, our world has grown darker. Sin is more heartily approved than ever before. And biblical truths are viciously attacked. To deny yourself and take up your cross is to be willing to stand in front of that and say, No! 
No. <laughs> this past, these past six months in Finland, there has been some of the most shocking stories coming out of that country. particularly with respect to biblical marriage being created male and female. In 2019, activist prosecutors in Finland, in the Finnish legal system, have systematically targeted a minister of parliament and a bishop of a local church for their public confession of their faith in Christ. The Finnish general prosecutor accused these two of three counts of ethnic agitation, for a tweet directed at an evangelical Lutheran church for their support of homosexuality and for a picture containing a Bible quote. How hateful is that? And the second, on a radio debate and a 17-year-old pamphlet describing this woman's Christian views on marriage and sexuality. The prosecutor charged the bishop with hate speech merely for publishing a booklet about the Bible. And it was only this week that they were exonerated. But then the general prosecutor came back and said, I'm going to try it again in court. I'm appealing their acquittal. That's our world today. Paul clearly understood this concept about the cross. He said, indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him. That's what Jesus is proposing here. A disciple lives in the shadow of the cross. A disciple lives in a kingdom that has a narrow path. And finally, a disciple, let there be light. <laughs> it's harder to read my notes at my age. And thirdly, the second coming. Yes. The disciple, a disciple, disciples carry the hope of Christ's return in their heart. The note of judgment that we saw in 1626 becomes clear in 27. Jesus is saying, for the Son of Man is going to come with his angels in the glory of his Father and then will repay each person according to what he has done. There is a day where we will stand before the throne and the Ancient of Days will have given his Son the right to judge all those who have turned away from Christ and the right to judge all those who have come to know Christ and have lived a life of denial and cross-bearing and following. That is what is being said here. And there are rewards. There are rewards for what we do. Paul writes about that in Corinthians. So Jesus makes this point. Don't, don't, don't live a life of self-interest, but of sacrifice. And what motivates you, what should motivate you, is what Jesus has said here. There is life beyond death. 
There's a judgment that awaits all. But that means there's a life beyond death. And whether you will be separated from, from the sheep or as a goat, it depends on the life that you live in response to the gospel. But God has made a way through Christ. He has called us to come to faith in Christ. He sent His Son to die for our sins that we might have new life, that we might be transformed into new creations. And Christ, when He rose from the dead, as we so celebrated last week, He didn't leave us alone, but sent the Holy Spirit that we might be able to live for Him and follow Him and have the power to do exactly what He's asking us to do right here. You're not alone. Jesus cares for you. He says to cast your cares upon Him, to carry His burden, which is easy and light, Jesus came, John writes, that we might have life and have it more abundantly. That's the story here. That's the, that's the reward. That's the goal. And one day to hear, well done, good and faithful servant, enter into my glory. And then we, we come to verse 28. And I read, I read nine different commentaries on verse 28, which is considered one of the more controversial passages in all of Scripture. And from those nine commentaries, I got nine different interpretations. So, if you want to come over and borrow my nine commentaries, <laughs> I think the context here, I would agree with D.A. Carson, um, seems to refer to when he talks about, truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. He's not talking about immortality. I think it's about seeing Christ after his resurrection, in his power and in his glory, a limited glory, but seeing Christ after his resurrection and seeing the power of God being revealed and manifested as the gospel spreads and the church comes about. That's the kingdom right there. So what do we do? What do we do with this? How do we how do we take a passage that's so rich, a passage that literally could have been five different messages? How do we how do we take a passage like this and bring application to our own lives? Well we ask we just ask questions of ourselves with the passage. Where, where do I not live a life of self-denial? Where, where am I not sacrificing? Or where, is, where do I live a life of self-interest? So, so evaluating through those, those words. Where, where do I take up my cross? Or do I not? Do I, you know, we had a, a guest speaker here years ago, Max Stiles, Taught, teaching us about evangelism. And one of the phrases Mac used that has, has stuck with us is when we're, when we're fearful about sharing the gospel, which is really, in a sense, not taking up our cross because of the ramifications of sharing the gospel. He says that, that oftentimes we're, we're tempted to duck, that we're, we're ducking the reality of sharing the truth of Christ because it might cost us something. Taking up your cross is a willingness to be ridiculed by your neighbor, to be rejected by your friends, to struggle 
with being at loss in a job and even a financial loss because you stood for Christ. That's taking up your cross. Most of you are not going somewhere around the world where your life may be in danger. I told Marilyn when I was 85, my goal was to fly to a Muslim country, stand on the gospel, stand on the corner, share the gospel, get stoned to death and go home and be with the Lord. (laughs) She's like, you're an idiot. (laughs) I wanted to take up my cross. So... And then the the last thing he says is, follow me. Follow me. You do that every time you show up here on a Sunday. You do that every time you gather together with other believers and you share your life with them and they share their life with you. You do that when you pray. You do that when you give. You do that when you serve. And so, be a follower. Be a denier. Be a cross-bearer for the glory of God. Let's pray. Father, thank you for giving us these words that give us hope and give us life, that show us the narrow path in such a way that we might live to honor your name, to exalt your name. Lord, thank you. Thank you that you give life to your words through the Holy Spirit. And may the Holy Spirit seal each of these words from this passage on every heart here that they may grow in Christ. In Jesus' name, amen.